Lord, may the words of my mouth this morning, the meditation of all the hearts gathered here, be guided by your word and pleasing to you, O Lord. You who loves us with an unfailing love and mercy. You who are our sure and certain help, our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. So I love stories. I really love hearing stories. I love seeing stories, even telling stories. What about you? Do, you? do stories catch your heart, catch your mind, your imagination? I love that we get involved, that it engages, oh my, engages my head, and it touches my heart, it makes me think, it makes me feel something. And because of that, because of that, sometimes I can see something different in a different way. And if you want me to remember something, tell me a story. I think we've got to be wired somehow for that, to, to listen and to enjoy stories. I mean, look at all the stories around us in our lives. We've got books and movies. We've got TV and the stories of commercials. But we also put stories into our texts and Facebook. We put stories in our pictures and Instagram. We've got the story of the music we listen to. It must be that story does touch both mind and heart and soul, don't you think? I particularly love stories from movies. Now, I get so involved visually, audibly, emotionally that often I can't watch the screen. It, it is impossible for me to watch a suspense movie. It's because it draws me in too much. I'm too much of a part of it. I can't keep this emotional distance. And that's fun. That's entertainment. But also, in a movie, it, it, it can take me to places I've never been and into new circumstances. I see things in a new way. For me, it happened a couple of months ago when I saw the movie Hidden Figures, things I never understood before. Because of that movie, though, now I understand things I had not realized. I think we can say that Jesus loved stories. Well, I know we can say that Jesus loved telling stories. Jesus would often tell a story, and we call those parables. But he told that story instead of giving a straight answer to a question. So people could think about it, have to digest it. So today I want to tell you a story that Jesus told, only it's not a parable. In fact, Jesus didn't tell it with his own voice or with his own words. He spoke the story instead through the lives of real people, people who had lived long before he came on the scene. People who end up being very important in Jesus' life. Because when we read this story in the Bible, God is telling it in such a way that we might not think he plays a major part in their story. He doesn't walk on stage. We don't see him interact with the characters directly. But boy, do we get to see what he does through people. And it's such a story of good news. Good news for those who are living the story. Good news for us who are hearing the story. That we're calling this story the gospel, the good news of Ruth. The good news because it is a story of God reaching into our broken world with his power, his grace to rescue, to restore, and to save people. Now you've probably heard the story of Ruth before. You probably will think, I, I pretty well know what it means. But over the next four weeks, I invite you to dig into it, to become a part of the story. It's a short story. It's 10 to 15 minutes to read at tops. 
even listen to it. You can find easily an audio version of the Book of Ruth on, on YouTube or on Bible Gateway or U version. But get into the story each week. Get beyond the Hallmark romance version that you might remember of the story. Try to imagine the circumstances of an agrarian culture 3,000 years ago. To do that, you're probably going to have to do some research. Try to place yourself in that culture and the customs of that area. And that's probably the most difficult thing for us living in this modern, western, first world nation. You know what? That's going to mean you're going to have some questions. You're going to have some insights. And I want you to share that with us. So when you do this, we you pick up a take it home with you this week and every week. And then we want you to go to our online community that we call The City. And we want you to post it every week. Pick up on those conversations. Post your question. Post your observation. It's easy to get into the city. Just go to our, our webpage, click on the city, and then click under the groups for Take It Home. If you're not a member of that group, become a member of that group by in the search box on the upper right-hand side. Just search for the Take It Home group. Become a part of that. And then just respond to the topic. Put down what you've got. We want to start this conversation about what God is doing in this story and therefore in our lives. Each week in this series, we're going to take a look at the four major characters of the story. Now, you can tell from the title of the book that the person of Ruth is going to be an integral part of the story. But there are three others as well. And if you're at all familiar with the story, you can probably guess who they are. But as any good story does... The very beginning of the book of Ruth helps set the scene for where we are and what's going on. Fills you in on the circumstances. And then the story introduces the characters. But then in a, just a short verse or two, the book of Ruth is going to throw in a plot twist. So let's get started. And, and to help you kind of visualize this cast of characters, it's a family, really, I've invited some people to build this living family portrait up here. So as I read through the opening of the story, setting the stage, each character is going to come and sit in our portrait. Okay? You got the idea? So let's set the scene. It's Ruth, chapter 1, verse 1. And I invite you to open your own Bibles, if you brought them this morning. There's one in the pew in front of you. It's just three pages, however. It might be easy to miss. So it's on page 222 of the Bible in your pews. It comes right after the book of Judges, but it's before First and Second Samuel and the, the stories of King David. So here we go. Ruth 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, and there we've got the stage set. In these days, the people of Israel have been rescued from Egypt They've come to be settled in the promised land. There are no kings yet here in Israel. So the people are kind of living in this loose association of tribes and clans. But then in, in kind of an appallingly short period of time, the Bible tells us that the tribes of Israel knew neither the Lord nor knew what he had done for them. They had forgotten they were once Egyptian slaves. And that God had broken their chains to claim them as his people. And in those days, everyone did as they saw fit. It was a society that was governed by passions and impulses and self-service. They forgot what life looked like when you loved God and you loved others. And instead, they 
embraced the terrible practices of those around them. It was a dark time. They had invading armies, the collapse of government and justice, oppression and famine. That was the time of Ruth. We may think our politics today a little unsettling, but they were living in a disaster. And as just as rain falls on the land of both good and evil people, these calamities were falling both upon the unfaithful and the faithful as well. This was not a promised land. This was a perverse land. And right from the beginning, we can tell that this is going to be a story about hard times. So back to verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. You know, the crisis is so bad in this promised land that this man has to take the family and leave it. Going to a land that lies across the Dead Sea. Well, how appropriate is that? In verse 2, the name of the man was Elimelech. And we have our first major character. Come on, come on down. (laughs) The name of his wife was Naomi. So she's going to come and respectfully stand behind him. Verse 2 continues, it says, The names of the two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were, come on up guys, they were the clan of Ephraim. They were from Bethlehem in Judah. Bethlehem, by the way, you know, you can loosely translate that as bread basket. That's kind of ironic in this story of famine, isn't it? And now for the rest of verse 2, I need one more son. We're missing a son. (laughs) So here's our family. They went into the country of Moab, and they remained there. Moab, by the way, is the home of Israel's traditional enemies. Probably not a friendly reception there for uh, refugees. In verse 3, a surprise here. We've been introduced to the main character, Elimelech. Well, Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. Dad, you can leave the picture. (laughs) He just may get an Oscar for that. A woman buries her husband now in a foreign soil. But at least, at least she's left with this inheritance of two sons, two sons, but alien refugees. So probably not many jobs around and probably not many Jewish girls around either. Verse 4. These sons took Moabite wives. The names of one was Orpah, not Oprah, Orpah. The name of the other was Ruth. And these two wives enter the family portrait and the story. And at the end of verse 4, we hear, well, they lived there about 10 years. This is no short trip. 10 years and Moab. Hopefully they've got a green card. 10 years. 10 years gone since Bethlehem. 10 years and no children in this portrait. 
And what's next? Verse 5. And both Malon and Achillion died. Gentlemen, please leave the picture. This story starts with three men, and after five verses, just five verses, which really cover years and years of heartache and tragedy, we have three women without any visible means of support. This is the story God is going to tell, and it is in the lives of women that he's going to tell it. Thank you. Have a seat. Now, God never explains himself here in the book of Ruth. God doesn't give any of them three good reasons for why their life is so hard. God looks silent. The men even go to their graves without their questions unanswered. Their longings are unfulfilled. Now, God may seem silent in this, but God is not absent. God is an essential, unseen player in this story, and he's the first of our major characters because he has been telling the story ever since the beginning. The beginning where we had this intentional, wonderful creation that was honestly, honestly, it was everything we're still longing for in life. But humans thought that they had a better idea that that being God in their life was better than walking with the real God. And ever since the fall from this perfection, from this trueness, God's been at work to recreate it, to restore it, to redeem this broken world and its broken people. That's the story God has been telling from Genesis chapter 3 on. And sometimes God uses these broad strokes, you know, peoples, nations in the story. He formed a nation, Israel, out of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then he brings down a nation, the powerful Egypt. But sometimes he uses other nations like Assyria and Babylon to discipline his people, to make them see, make them see the results of the choices they're making. But God also shepherds his people. Shepherds his people in both physical and spiritual journeys, a journey out of slavery into a new relationship, a covenant with God, and then a journey to green pastures, the promised land, but, but the people become afraid and rebel. So then he has to shepherd them through a journey of 40 years in the wilderness until the rebellion dies, and then they journey into the land of their inheritance. And here in the promised land, He warns them. He warns them about the surrounding cultures and communities they're going to live with. Those that worship false gods and practice human sacrifice. But the people of Israel don't listen to God's story. They wander off. And life suffers. It becomes oppressive. So he draws new leaders, judges, into what he's doing to repeat to them the true story. To call them back to it. And then they do for a while. They respond. But then it's a terrible downward spiral. They would fall away, be called back by a judge, only to be falling away again. But God's story is bigger than just restoring the tribes of Israel. It has been from the very beginning a story of restoring all of humanity to what they had lost in the garden, a relationship that's written into our hearts and that's signed with the blood of Jesus. It's a new covenant. So here in this book, 
here in the mid, the grand story of peoples and nations comes a story about three seemingly inconsequential women. A little story, three pages. But here's what we need to know. The book of Ruth is an essential story in this huge redemption story that God is writing. The story of how Jesus comes to earth cannot be told without the book of Ruth. It's through the pain and the loss and the love and the redemption that's written in this story that leads us to the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. And he's going to use the story of the life and the work of these women, Naomi and Ruth. He's going to use that to tell the story. And we will see over the next couple of weeks how they discover how they discover God is not silent or absent. He is at work in their personal story, that he is there in their trials and their tribulations, their pain, their brokenness. But it's an honest struggle for them. We're going to see that. There's no rose-colored glasses here. And in meeting him, though, they're going to gain this trust in what he is doing. And they're going to refuse to let go of him, even in the midst of all this. And when our life feels broken, their story encourages us to get in there, to really struggle honestly with what God is doing. So back to my question at the beginning of the service, how are you doing? Are there sleepless nights? Does anxiety kind of make you wake up in a sweat in the morning? Does it look like God is not showing up to hold things together no, much, no matter how much we beg? This story is for you. So come back next week and the next week and the next week. Discover how the people of Ruth meet God in circumstances like this. How they find the love of God at work in the action of others. Where kindness and mercy and loyalty are not emotions, but actions. And actions that come with a price. In English, we don't have a single word that, for that kind of faithful active love. But the human word, the human, the Hebrew word for that is chesed. And it's called a costly, unfailing love that, that puts others first. So come back over the next three weeks and so you can learn from these people of Ruth. So you can learn to recognize chesed in your life. Because God is actively loving you, even if you don't see it. God's people are loving you. And because where chesed is at work, where God's unfailing mercy and grace and kindness are at work, there is also the azer, the helper, the one who bears the cost, the champion, the redeemer. The book of Ruth is full of chesed. And it helps us to recognize the Azer, the helper. And in seeing this in action in the book of Ruth, we will see the underlying truth in all of the Bible stories, that it is God himself who is the author of Hesed, that God is our helper in our greatest need when sin and death are crushing us and we deserve no better, that Jesus will die for us on the cross, taking away our sins and death, and through his sacrifice, we, we are forgiven. We are restored. We are recreated. 
There's one more story to tell in the book of Ruth. One more thing to notice about God's part in the story. Because there's, there's no burning bush in this story where God speaks. There's no pillar of fire where God leads. There are no visions or dreams or angel messages. God's great kindness and his love appear in this story through his people, through the actions of his people. It happens when they, in response to his love, when they begin to look and to live and to love more like him. It happens with Naomi and Ruth, when Boaz feel another's pain and loss, and they, they take a stand with them. It happens in the story when people who are insignificant and inconsequential, when they are seen and valued, and they're brought into community. It happens when the powerless are defended by a champion. And their story reminds us that in our lives, there are refugees and victims with heartbreaking stories of their own. And then to love more like Jesus means our love will take action. That Jesus calls us to be agents of change right where we are, to become the Azor, the helper that enters into other people's lives, to feed the hungry, to, to welcome the lonely into our community, to protect the weak. Knowing the overwhelming love of Jesus, we will develop the eyes to see where people need God's redeeming love. And the wonderful news about this, the good news about this, the gospel part of this is we don't do it ourselves. We can't do it by ourselves, regardless of how much we try. The good news is that the Azar, the helper, the Holy Spirit, is there to do it through us in us, with us, together. Even in the twists and turns of our individual life, God is bringing about his kingdom that it may spread to others. And we get to play a part in that. We get to trust him to do it and to do it through us. Amen. Thank you for spending some time in God's word with us during this message. It was recorded live in worship at Trinity Church in Lyle, Illinois where God is leading us on our mission to look, live, and love more like Jesus. Would you like to know more about a relationship with Christ or more about Trinity, who we are, what we believe, and where and when you might join us in worship or a growth group? Please visit our website at tlc4u.org. That's the letters T-L-C, the number four, and the letter U.org. May God bless you and yours abundantly through Jesus Christ. Thanks again for listening.